The Lord said to Moses, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. That was an excerpt from Exodus chapter 3, and this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a weekly look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchowskis. Hello and welcome. Our text today, Biblical Hermeneutics by Gilberto da Silva Gorgulho, is full of revolutionary insights into liberationist readings of the big book. But how do liberation theologians approach the Bible? What do they say, not only about the way we read the Bible, but also about the content of the Bible? And what does the Bible, a big, old, long, and ancient scroll, have to do with the struggles for justice and freedom today. Gilberto addresses these huge questions and more, and I'm certain that our exploration of this chapter together will change the way that we think about the Bible. But before we get into the text, a few introductory notes. The title is Biblical Hermeneutics, and hermeneutics, what is that? Uh, <laughs> Hermeneutics in this context refers to the way that we read something, the approach that we use to interpret a message. The word comes from the root Hermes, the Greek messenger god, and that's especially appropriate for the Bible because the Bible is a message from God. But how do we interpret it? What does it mean? That's the work of hermeneutics, the method we use to crack the code. And given that there's some heady stuff to come, we'll break it down through two short stories from Ernesto Cardenal's The Gospel and Solentiname, since that book is precisely a retelling of Bible studies done by a group of poor peasants who read God's word in light of their experiences and their quest for liberation. And that's the heart of liberation theology's approach to the Bible. The best interpreters of the Bible are people who are oppressed because the Bible is, at its heart, good news to the oppressed. The Bible is a story about liberation from oppression for people who are seeking liberation from oppression. Gilberto starts by bringing up two problems with which liberationist interpreters of the Bible have to contend. The first is an issue posed by Hugo Asman. When people read the Bible, or any piece of writing for that matter, they bring to it their political position, and their political position informs their understanding of the meaning of the text. Sometimes we consciously read the Bible from our political position. We use the Bible to justify our position, or we use our position to criticize the Bible. 
Sometimes the influence of our political position, our social location, is less conscious, though. We read the Bible clouded by our point of view, by our economic class, our personal interests, our family situation, or our denominational affiliation, and we don't even know it. And this problem is amplified by the fact that the Bible is an old book in a foreign language. It seems there is an unbridgeable gap between how first century folks might have understood the New Testament and how we understand it. And to a certain extent, this problem is unavoidable. There is no neutral position, no view from nowhere, that can claim total detachment from personal, political, and generational concerns. Let me give a few examples of political interpretive positions that I see applied to the Bible today. Many circles of Christians read the Bible through the lens of the Protestant-Catholic divide. This method was especially strong in my life during some of my undergraduate years at Wake Forest in North Carolina. I was a minority Catholic on a majority Protestant campus, so it's not surprising that I was struggling to defend my Catholicity in the face of Protestant critiques. When I picked up the Bible, questions about faith and works, priesthood and the sacraments, justification and righteousness and scripture and tradition were front and center. I was reading the Bible so that I could defend my faith, and that's not uncommon. It's how many folks read the Bible today. Another paradigm of biblical interpretation is the historical critical method, and I started to adopt it when I took academic classes on the Bible. The goal was to get at the literal historical meaning of the text, and this method can indeed be very helpful. The student comes to see a richer picture of biblical events that a cursory, ahistorical reading could never provide. This method has its limits, though, for the Christian. It looks at the Bible as a dead document, as any other document from ancient history. The historical critical scholar does not necessarily see the Bible as an inspired text and may not have much interest in applying the biblical text to the present situation. Lastly, though I have had little first-hand engagement with this method, I see it used by others all the time, the hermeneutic of contradiction. Some folks, often militant atheists, read the Bible to expose its inconsistencies. They sift through the text in search of God's anger, scientific flaws, historical inaccuracies, and moral paradoxes. They take their skepticism to the Bible and they read it as such. These examples illustrate what Asman identifies as a real problem. Aren't our readings of the Bible too influenced by our standing ideological commitments? This doubt brings us to the second problem that Gilberto identifies, this time expressed by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's first instruction on liberation theology. If the Bible is to have meaning for Christians as Christians, then it cannot be a mere rehashing of our political positions. It cannot be merely subjective. There is truth to the Bible. We cannot reduce the Bible to our own social relativity. Given these two concerns, Gilberto lays out the first points that stake out liberation theology's line of biblical interpretation. First, a popular reading of the Bible does not look at biblical interpretation in an academic way, but in a living way. And second, hermeneutics as interpretation from the praxis of the liberation of the poor and that of Jesus of Nazareth is discernment of communication with the living, loving word of the Spirit. 
Gilberto leaves a big question relatively unanswered in the course of this transition from Osman and the CDF to his content, so let me attempt a response to fill in the gap. Some may object, yes, Osman is onto something, and we can apply it to liberationist readings of the Bible themselves. Isn't liberation theology biased by reading the Bible in terms of social, political, and economic liberation? Doesn't uh, liberation theologians' Marxist lens cloud their vision of the Bible? Doesn't this lens obscure their appreciation for the Bible's symbolic and spiritual meaning? And we can look at this concern in two ways, pragmatic and academic. Pragmatically, the oppressed are not interested in postmodern critiques of their reading of the Bible. As Gilberto says later, Quote, the poor read the Bible in a situation of suffering and political and economic domination. It is not a theoretical reading, nor a search for ideas. It is a question of life and death, of freedom or domination. They look in the Bible for the truth that sets them free. End quote. The scholar, skeptic, or reactionary can critique the bias of the poor person's biblical interpretation, but the poor person needs to survive, to live, and sees the Bible as an inspiration for the struggle to be free, to live and thrive. Academically, many liberation theologians defend the idea that the Bible itself, objectively, is a document about liberation for people seeking liberation. The Bible's content, read historically, supports this liberation theology approach. The main event of the Old Testament is the liberation of the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery, and the main event of the New Testament is Jesus' proclamation of the reign of God, which belongs to the poor, as the first beatitude makes clear. The gospel, the good news, is the liberation of the poor, per Luke 4. The poor are the privileged recipients of this message, so their take on its message, their hermeneutics, should also be privileged. Liberation hermeneutics are both pastorally and academically sound. Liberationists respond to the real need of the oppressed, and their writings contain arguments that defend biblical content and interpretation as liberationist, to which the Bible itself gives witness as a historical document. And that's why you will see academic liberation theologians cite both contemporary historical struggles as well as biblical scholars in the tradition of the historical critical method. Liberation theology is academically serious and contextually sensitive. So returning to the main thread of the text, Gilberto writes about popular interpretations of the Bible. The oppressed read the book not as, quote, past history alone, but as a story that is still happening today, end quote. God's written word is not dead, but living and active. It speaks to the present moment. And when the present moment is poverty, there is little interest in the Bible as a stale historical document to be understood as an artifact. Rather, when the poor read the Bible, the objective is not to interpret the Bible, but to interpret life with the help of the Bible. The goal is not to learn facts about ancient Israel, but to apply the liberating spirit of the Bible to contemporary concerns. This allows the oppressed to see what academic exegetes or intellectual interpreters cannot see. 
The poor do not seek to interpret the Bible. They seek to live it. The poor do not seek to understand the Bible. They seek to apply it with creativity as an inspiration for their struggle for emancipation. They don't give a neutral reading. They read in service of their liberation. But why do the poor of Latin America turn to the Bible to assist in their liberation? They could turn to Marx, to Lenin, to Mao, and many do. But the fact remains that as Gilberto so powerfully names, quote, For the poor of Latin America, liberation is not a purely secular problem. Rather, the liberation of the poor occupies the center of religion. In the midst of liberation is the Christian faith. End quote. Religion is not alienated from revolutionary action for the Latin American masses. Religion is integral revolutionary action. It is the promise of total liberation. Jesus saves not only the individual soul from sin, but the community from injustice. It all holds together. So that's how the oppressed approach the Bible, but what is the Bible? And here's one of Gilberto's strongest insights. He claims that the Bible is the memory of the poor, the memory of their historical search for a just social life as the people of God. This memory passes through several phases in the Old Testament. Memory of the formation of a people, Genesis. Memory of the liberation of a people, Exodus to Joshua, roughly. Memory of the prophetic resistance of a people, Samuel to Malachi, roughly. The poor of today in search of justice see a relationship to the story of Israel in search for justice, the story that the Bible recounts. They see themselves in that story. Much of the Old Testament is a theological, sociological exposition of slave and tributary modes of production. Under the inspiration of God, Moses and his successors lead the Hebrew people from Egyptian slavery to freedom in the Promised Land. However, their liberty does not last. They fall back into problematic, monarchic, temple-centered, colonized, tributary paradigms. And more on that process in a bit. Uh, Gilberto takes a deeper dive into the Old Testament later in the chapter. For now, we can say that the liberation theologian, in union with the socioeconomic urgency of the poor, sees sociological mediation in the Bible not as just one among many readings, but as an indispensable axis of interpretation. If the gospel is good news for the poor, their liberation from oppression, then a social, political, economic hermeneutic must be prioritized. So what are the material conditions of the Bible? What are the economic and political causes of these material conditions? And how can the people of God liberate themselves from these injustices? Gilberto cites some prophetic biblical passages of importance to this hermeneutic of liberation. From Exodus chapter 22, verses 21 to 27. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry. My wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children orphans. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. 
If you take your neighbor's cloak and pawn, you shall restore it before the sun goes down, for it may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as cover. In what else shall that person sleep? And if your neighbor cries out to me, I will listen, for I am compassionate. This passage is incredibly illuminating as the Hebrews move from a situation of oppression in Egypt to a situation of greater freedom. God wants the Hebrew people to create laws that give preferential option to the poor. They are not to adopt the position of the oppressor now that they have been liberated. Rather, the interests of the oppressed must remain their interests. They are not to repeat the cycle of oppression, but rather break it through memory. That's the importance of the celebration of the Passover meal. The Hebrew people must never forget their own movement to freedom. And this remembrance should inspire them to be in perpetual solidarity with the oppressed, who they once were. This perspective would go a long way in helping Christians and Jews take a position of greater solidarity with Palestinians today, I might add. Gilberto brings in another important set of interrelated passages from the Old Testament. First, Hosea 6.6, quote, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, end quote. Second, Jeremiah 22.16, quote, He judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well. Is not this to know me, says the Lord, end quote. And here we have the oft-repeated insight of Gustavo Gutierrez when we combine these two passages. Quote, to know God is to do justice. End quote. To know God is not principally to offer sacrifices in the temple. That's, and that's a big claim in ancient Israel. To know God is to act in solidarity with the poor. Jesus relies on this concept in that classic passage from Matthew. When we feed the poor, give drink to the thirsty. Visit the prisoner, take care of the sick, welcome the stranger. We are meeting God, for God is the oppressed person. To know God is to know the poor. To act in the name of God is to act in the name of the poor. When we get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the incomplete attempts at a just society that failed in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Yahweh liberates the Hebrews from Egypt but that liberation does not last. In the New Testament, Jesus liberates the poor from oppression and inaugurates the reign of God. In the Old Testament, God elects Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus elects the poor. In the Old Testament, God establishes a covenant on Mount Sinai. In the New Testament, Jesus establishes a covenant on the Sermon on the Mount. In the Old Testament, there is an eschatology of hope, in the New Testament, there is an ex eschatology of praxis. The culmination of the Incarnation is the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. These events yield the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Latin America can relate to this movement of suffering, of assassination, then of new life in the Spirit. Gilberto writes, The theological place from which everything flows is the cross of Christ, happening in Latin American history, and the perception that life and spirit only emanate from the cross born in love and in the fight for the justice of the reign of God. He continues, quote, The gospel is primarily an infused gift of the Holy Spirit. End quote. The good news does not end with Jesus. 
the Bible does not end with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel is continually proclaimed in the concrete revolutionary action of the Holy Spirit in people. Ernesto Cardenal's The Gospel in Solentiname is a great window into the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the poor. Let's look at how the poor in Cardenal's base community in Nicaragua read the crucifixion since we just spoke of the cross of Christ happening in Latin America. On a swelteringly hot Good Friday, the campesinos start with an interpretation of Simon of Cyrene. A curious set of details from Luke's gospel captures their attention. Quote, he was coming from the countryside when they made him carry the cross. End quote. There is an intimate solidarity of the working class. Jesus a builder, Simon of Cyrene a farmer. Both are screwed over. But how did Simon feel when carrying the cross of Christ? On one hand, he must have felt intimidated. They made him carry the cross. They saw his rural poverty and knew they could force him to carry out this humiliating act. He was not a wealthy man, nor a son of the aristocracy. He was a rural worker who shared the burden of Christ. On the other hand, Simon must have felt honored. He might have been in the proximity of the cross in the first place because he admired Jesus and wanted to show his support. Simon saw Jesus as a revolutionary leader. And Simon now had a chance to be close to Jesus, to help him in a real way when Jesus needed him the most. What about the women who were crying and shouting in sadness for Jesus? The women who Jesus tells to weep, not for him, but for themselves and for their children. A woman, a Nicaraguan peasant, points out that Jesus liberated women. The women knew his sacrifice. They knew that he had picked up his love for the poor and his love for women from Mary. They knew Jesus' mother, that revolutionary woman who had called for the overthrowing of the rich and the elevation of the poor in her Magnificat. The communist woman who wanted to fill up the poor and send the rich away empty. The firebrand woman who had raised Jesus in her political line as much as in her bloodline. When Jesus was telling these women to weep for themselves and for their children, he was predicting the Roman quelling of the Israelites' independence movement later that century. He knew that if he had suffered in the unarmed struggle, they would suffer much more in the armed struggle. Jesus is crucified alongside two guerrilla warriors, two thieves who had stolen from the rich as to feed the poor. It is fitting that Jesus, the king of the Jews, would be crucified next to two subversives. When Jesus tells the good subversive that today he would be in paradise, Jesus meant not only that there is a beyond for those who die for justice, he also meant that paradise begins today in general, that is, on the day of the crucifixion, from which liberating life flows out into the world. The death of Jesus ushers in a new era of human history. The Nicaraguan peasants also turn their attention to Jesus' statement that his crucifiers knew not what they were doing. The peasants relate these words to the situation of the poor who join the army in Latin America to win a stable source of income. Often these poor soldiers carry out orders to attack their own people without knowing what they are doing. I think of a scene from the Guatemalan film 
When the Mountains Tremble, in which the filmmakers ask a government soldier why he is combing villages for weapons and subversives. He responds with a blank stare, a strange smile, and the words, I don't know. Herod, Pilate, the chief priest, and other elite may have known what was at stake in Jesus' ministry, but the average soldier may have had no idea. When the base community arrives at the death of Jesus in the passage, they are struck by the fact that many Holy Week devotions have little to do with the epic revolutionary nature of Jesus' assassination. One person comments that even the evil capitalist company Coca-Cola has sponsored reflections on Jesus' seven last words. Holy Week should not be about empty liturgical rituals or hollow reactionary sermons. Holy Week should be an impulse to continue to carry out the liberating work of Jesus no matter the cost. If Holy Week is not subversive, then Holy Week has lost its meaning. That's how the poor of Nicaragua read the Bible. That's the spirit at work in them. Gilberto kicks off part two of his chapter with a question. What is the main theme of the hermeneutic of liberation in the Old Testament? And he gives an answer straight away. We always like that. Quote, we see history as the process of the formation of a free and united people, end quote. This dialectical trajectory, as mentioned previously, fails in the Old Testament, but leads to the coming, the hopeful coming, of the reign of God in Jesus in the New Testament. The hinge on which the Old Testament turns is the Exodus event. The Hebrew people, owners of no land, as slaves in Egypt, become landowners on the other side of the desert. Gilberto writes, quote, The exodus and land distribution constitute the center and base of the memory of the poor because it's the, ex it's the experience that gives rise to the life of a free people, end quote. We can turn to Deuteronomy 26, verses 5 through 9, to get a summary of this historical memory of the importance of the Exodus event. Quote, You shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, end quote. When the Hebrew people arrive in the promised land, the central conflict shifts to that between Baal and the God of Israel. This division reflects a conflict in economics. Baal is viewed in the biblical literature as the ideological bedrock of the exploitation of submissive workers in the city-state. By contrast, the God of Israel is seen as the God of liberation, proven in the Exodus. Baal is a servile God, foreshadowed specifically in the Exodus event in the golden calf. 
Baal is representative of power and money, representative of the official state morality, not the Ten Commandment morality, which comes from God alone. That's why Baal is associated with an abandonment of God's commands and associated with the calf in 2 Kings 17.16. Quote, They rejected all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves cast images of two calves. They made a sacred pole, worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. End quote. In the promised land, the Israelites struggle to preserve the non-tributary land equality model that had characterized the inception of their free political project. Gilberto writes, quote, Their organization and social project are based on the distribution of land, the source of their labor, without a tribute to a superior community, end quote. In Joshua, we see that land does not belong to kings, but is divided among liberated families. This more equitable model under Joshua and the judges, disappointingly, gives way to an inequitable monarchical model under Saul, David, and Solomon. This leads the Old Testament prophets to criticize the ambiguity and idolatry of the Davidic Solomonic state. It's always helpful to remind ourselves that monarchy was not God's intent. Samuel, reporting the very words of God, advises against kingship in 1 Samuel 8, 12 through 14. Quote, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day." End quote. It's an extremely prophetic passage. Imagine reading it to historical monarchs who claim divine right. Samuel's words are pure subversion of the royal concentration of power, as expressed in the tributary system where material and human resources are taken away from the poor and funneled up to the king. And it's crazy to think that monarchies still exist in some Christian-majority countries until this day. We need to learn the lesson of Samuel. We need to learn from the failure of the Old Testament line of David. The only absolute to whom we owe total obedience is to God. The fall of the Davidic monarchy leads to two additional distortions. First, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Romans take turns colonizing the oppressed people of God. They plunder the Israelites' wealth, appropriate their land, and send some into exile as enslaved laborers. Into the Roman iteration of this colonization, Jesus, our Savior, is born. 
Second, the fall of the monarchy leads to the rise of priestly power in the Jerusalem temple. The power of the high priest is amplified, and the high priest becomes both an exploiter of his own people and a puppet of foreign empire. Through temple commerce, the buying and selling of forgiveness of sins, the high priest concentrates wealth. At certain points in Jewish history, temple wealth was also then exported by priests to the colonizers. We can see why Jesus was so adamant that the money changers be cast out of the temple and that the temple be destroyed. When Jesus dies, the temple curtain is torn in two, symbolic of Jesus' antagonism to the temple. Jesus stands against the oppressive tributary temple system, and that's the material reason why the Jewish religious authorities are so intent on killing him. The temple was the link that held together the power of the priestly class and the imperial power. Jesus wanted to break that link. Since we have just discussed the problem of the temple as a locus of oppression, it is fitting to look at the passage of Ernesto Cardenal's The Gospel in Solentiname, in which his base community interprets Jesus' expulsion of the merchants from the temple. The community member Olivia starts the discussion with a bang. Quote, I believe that he kicked them out because they were exploiting people, because all commerce is exploitation. Gloria and William expand on Olivia's words, highlighting how folks use religion to exploit people by getting extra money out of them. Cardinal himself enters the conversation to note that only a few powerful families had control over the temple market, among them that of the high priest Annas. He claims that Jesus was very intentional with his use of the word thieves in calling the temple a, quote, den of thieves, end quote. The word thieves also meant guerrilla warriors or zealots at that time. So in calling the locale of the priest's system of exploitation a den of thieves, Jesus was really saying that the true thieves were Annas and his henchmen, not the guerrilleros who were fighting in the mountains, the zealots. As an aside, we can note how Cardinal is both pastoral and academic here, like we mentioned at the start of this podcast episode here. He uses an academic fact about etymology, denotation, connotation, to make a pastoral point that contributes to a discussion that began with ideas that the oppressed themselves generated. Back to the Gospel in Solentiname, Alejandro notes that Jesus' problem is not just with the commerce of the temple, but with commerce in general, because Jesus equates commerce with thievery. Den of thieves translates as den of merchants. William interjects by pointing out that buying and selling is not bad in general, but only when it is done for profit. He highlights that Cuba has a just way of exchanging goods and services in which the profit motive is diminished. Someone else asserts that even some people who buy and sell in capitalist countries are not unjust. The poor folks who sell bread and tortillas after church are not like the temple merchants. They are just trying to get by to survive. The problem is when commerce is done to exploit beyond serving the needs of the community. Cardinal then relates that a radical Chilean priest once told him that Jesus' overturning of the tables was likely a commando mission. 
He probably did not do it alone. After all, the authorities did not arrest him for fear of the people, and it was probably planned. Mark mentions that Jesus inspected the temple before the event. Gloria wonders why the Romans let Jesus carry out this revolutionary act, and William compares the act of a Roman response, the lack of a Roman response, excuse me, to the United States, which allows internal struggle, struggles in foreign countries to play out when there is no clear and direct U.S. interest. The group moves on to a discussion of the symbolic meaning of the cleansing of the temple. Julio thinks that each person is a temple of God, and people should not let the spirit of exploitative commerce possess them. Cardinal continues by mentioning that in the book of Revelation, St. John writes that there will be no temple in the New Jerusalem. The whole world will be the temple, and the whole world will be purified of the evil of capitalist commerce. The purification of the temple is just the beginning. Picking up where we left off with the person of Jesus, we see that liberation theologians place special emphasis on the communal nature of the mission of the Messiah when interpreting the Bible. Though some popular U.S. takes on Christianity would have it otherwise, Jesus did not primarily come to save individual people from their individual sins, but to save the people from their social sin. Gilberto writes, quote, Jesus does not only look for isolated conversion, he looks to remake the life of the people into the life of the reign of God. End quote. To make this point clear, we can highlight the relationship between the category sin as ritual impurity and the temple system. When Jesus challenges laws of ritual purity, like hand washing and the prohibition of touching sick people, he is really subverting the whole temple system. It was for these sins that Israelites had to go to the temple, pay money, and make sacrifices. The elimination of the purity laws that occurred in the progressive distinction of Christian believers from Jewish believers had much to do with Jesus' criticism of this purity category that backed up the temple Jesus was not only healing individuals, but subverting structures. Jesus' revolutionary practices would not go unpunished by the target of his criticism. When you challenge the authority of the rich and powerful, you pay a price. In Jesus' case, it was the ultimate price. Yet, in the taking of Jesus' freedom and life, greater freedom and life come. As is the case in many revolutionary movements where the death of a leader only fans the fires of change. Jesus' resurrection is also confirmation that God does not let the oppressors have the final word. We can view the resurrection as God's overturning of the oppressive Roman-Israelite justice system. They issued a verdict of death, but God issued a verdict of life. The cross is the tree of life. But the resurrection is not an isolated event, and curiously enough, very few passages of the Bible are dedicated to it. The biblical authors pay much more attention to the life of the church born in the wake of Jesus' ascension to heaven and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. There is no book of the Bible dedicated entirely to Jesus' post-resurrection existence on earth, but there is an entire book of the Bible dedicated to the actions of the first apostles under the influence of the newly received Holy Spirit. With the infusion of the Holy Spirit comes the freedom to develop social structures of love. 
to incarnate utopia. We notice in the Acts of the Apostles that the early Christians lived as communists, sharing their wealth and their property. Two quotes from Gilberto demonstrate this point, quote, Faith in Christ brings about a new freedom, and this freedom produces love, the life of the new man, end quote. And, quote, Freedom and love come from the spirit who justifies, and the just person is the free person who loves neighbor, end quote. With the grace that flows from the cross in the form of the Holy Spirit, Christians are a new people who forge a new society. In St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 4, we read, quote, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and clothe yourselves, clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. End quote. As members of the body work for the common good of the entire body, I'm talking medically here, right? <laughs> members of the church work for the common good of the church and the world, non-medically. <laughs> there is no longer private good, only public good. The early Christians advanced the revolutionary social mission of Jesus even further than Jesus himself did. As Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 12, quote, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father, end quote. The church expands on the work and vision of Jesus with help from the divine grace of the Spirit. But this good work faces opposition, as we know, beyond biblical times to the present day. And here we see the relevance of the book of Revelation for contemporary oppressed communities. This book speaks to the perseverance of the incipient Christian movement in the face of early Roman persecution. The beast, symbolic of the Roman emperor, brings death to the first Christians, but the blood of the lamb, Jesus, gives life. In keeping with the liberating death of Jesus, there is a special role given to the martyrs in the book of Revelation. Martyrs give their lives to the new society that Jesus inaugurated, and their sacrifice is not in vain. Contemporary social movements have their own martyrs, and persecuted liberationist Christians can find resonance in the book of Revelation. Gilberto says, quote, Revelation is the predilect book of the popular communities. Here they find encouragement for their fight and a criterion to interpret domination and persecution that the poor continually suffer in our society, end quote. The bloody and struggle-laden imagery of the apocalypse may have little meaning for comfortable wealthy Christians for whom the book is little more than an, an intriguing script of the end of the world, but for oppressed Christians, the book is a clear reflection of their life of suffering and resistance. This chapter by Gilberto has shown how the Bible is the memory of the poor, to be interpreted by the poor for the liberation of the poor. The spirit that inspired the first Christians to adopt a communism of possessions is the same spirit that inspires the oppressed of today to interpret the Bible with a revolutionary hermeneutic. Gilberto writes, quote, Interpretation is fruit of the spirit, and it is interpretation of memory that the Spirit keeps alive always and activates in the midst of disciples in search of life and liberty. 
end quote. My own work of solidarity with the Hispanic community in Cincinnati, mostly Guatemalan migrants, takes the form of a base community that reads the scriptures together on Sunday mornings. It is shocking how many times a member of this community, carrying life experiences of poverty, migration, ethnic oppression, among many others, offers an interpretation of a biblical passage that never crossed my mind with my own set of experiences and privileges. The Spirit is active in these moments, liberating me from bourgeois interpretations and redoubling my solidarity with the proletariat. Christian-based communities are active throughout the world, and I cannot recommend participation in them enough. When we read the Bible together as people committed to the freedom of the oppressed, we see new things and challenge ourselves to be better disciples of Jesus the Liberator. Armed with the history and the methods we have discussed in these first few episodes, we will proceed straight into the systematic content of liberation theology on our next show. The text will be Gustavo Gutierrez's short but absolutely monumental chapter, The Option for the Poor. I look forward to reading it with you. For now, let's end with a prayer, this time the song that Moses and the Israelites sang to God after God had liberated them from the Egyptians, since the Exodus is such a key biblical event for liberation theology as we have seen today. You can find the song in Exodus chapter 15, and I would ask that we would contemplate what might be the meaning of this passage for revolutionary movements today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His picked officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury. It consumed them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. In your steadfast love, you led the people whom you redeemed. You guided them by the strength of your holy abode. The peoples heard, they trembled. Pangs seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. Trembling seized the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan melted away. Terror and dread fell upon them by the might of your arm. 
they became still as a stone until your people, O Lord, passed by, until the people whom you acquired passed by. You brought them in and planted them on the mountain of your own possession, the place, O Lord, that you made your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.